Well, welcome to our uh, first podcast, the Brookie and Burjo podcast. Uh, my name's Peter Bruckner, also known as Brookie, and uh, sitting opposite me is Darren Burgess, known universally as Burjo. Welcome, Burjo. <laughs> Cheers, Doc. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to, great to be here. And um, we're just going to talk uh, health and performance in these in these podcasts. Uh, as I said, this is our very first one, so we're, uh, we've got no idea what we're doing, but uh, we're going to have <laughs> hasn't fun. Hasn't stopped us uh, hasn't forging stopped us out a moderate right. career. Yeah. Um, and um, most weeks we'll have uh, we'll have a guest, uh, someone from the industry that uh, that we know that we'll uh, that we'll chat to, and particularly talk about their their careers and uh, and and what they've learned along the way, and 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 why what's got them to the top of their uh, their careers, but. Uh, before we start, the intro. You'd uh, recognise that, yes. of course. You'll never walk alone. Uh, we both spent time at uh, Liverpool and came to love that uh, love that song. Uh, it's an amazing song, and um, it uh, was first recorded back in 1945 in a in a musical you know, on Broadway and Carousel. And it's just become uh, every time there seems to be a world crisis, it seems to come out again. But uh, that particular rendition we heard then was. Uh, the biggest crowd to ever sing "You'll Never Walk Alone." Yes, up the road from where we are now at the MCG, ninety-five thousand people in two thousand and thirteen. Um, I'd finished with Liverpool by then. I was actually uh, I wasn't there. I was in England with the cricket team on the Ashes tour. Yep. But and you'd also finished with Liverpool. Finished, but you were yeah. there, weren't you? Yeah, I was there. I uh, I'd finished uh, and joined Port Adelaide in October the year before, and. Uh, yeah, but I went over because obviously we still had uh, a lot of friends and, and um, yeah, so I went over and met up with the players the day uh, of the game and it's funny, speaking to them afterwards, they were, um, yeah, pre, you know, pre-season games can be like, particularly in, in yeah. the Premier League, they just want to get through unscathed and play a lot of kids, but uh, the players were buzzing after that. They, they uh, The players said that after hearing that song, it felt like a proper game and a... And a real match, so uh, yeah, it was it was certainly you know fascinating being in the crowd uh, to hear ninety five thousand sing that. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's been bigger crowds that they've played in front of, probably the FA Cup finals, things like that. But half the team, half mm. the crowd there were the opposition, so it yeah. was probably the the most number of people to ever sing. You'll ever walk yeah, away because yeah, pretty was... much everyone in the stadium was uh, was singing, and uh, everyone who was there said it was the most amazing. Uh, Experience, but yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, but we might uh, explore. You'll never walk alone in future uh, editions. There's, there's been some amazing renditions of uh, of You'll Never Walk Alone. Um, you know, Frank Sinatra and Tom Jones and Elvis Presley <laughs> and Barbara <laughs> Streisand, plus obviously the Cop and uh, yep. and a bunch of other football clubs too. So we'll we'll uh, talk about that on another day. But I want to get uh, get started and uh, and talk to you about uh, about your journey. Um, to the top of the tree, really. I think you're universally regarded as as one of the elite uh, high performance uh, people in world sport. But um, take us back to uh, you grew up in in Sydney. Um, I, uh, I certainly dreamt of, uh, of you know playing cricket for Australia and playing uh, you know VFL as it was then for South Melbourne and so on. What, what about you? Did you? Did you play a lot of sport? Did you, uh, did you dream about being a professional athlete? Yeah, absolutely. I- when you hear uh, people on podcasts talk about their playing careers and it's always uh, I got injured and then I got fascinated in sports medicine, or but I, I was never good enough. I, I, I played an okay standard of cricket and I thought I was going to... You played, uh, now you're telling me you played Australian under-17 cricket? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, so I, I was pretty handy early on. Um, I was a wicketkeeper and... Um, Hang on a minute, you're, you're six foot... 
two in the old language or whatever. I mean, we keep us a, a little blokes. When I was little, I was good, and then I grew up and I wasn't so good. So who um, else was in that uh, that Australian under seventeen team? Any any big names? Uh, yeah, we had uh, Shane Lee. Um, we had uh, the current Australian cricket coach um, was there in right. in Langer. Um, right. So there was some there were some good cricketers. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, and and look we. We did okay, um, and I really enjoyed it. That's all I did. My my, my father and my grandfather were. Um, my grandfather played for New South Wales in Shield cricket, so um, that's probably where I got it from. So, um, but yeah, I got to sort of seventeen, eighteen, and and uh, I remember um, uh, I was playing for St George, uh, and the first grade keeper for St George left. I was playing seconds, and. Um, they brought in another keeper, so they obviously thought I wasn't good enough, and so I just went, okay, well, uh, you know, that's not for me. So, yeah. So then um, I thought if I could never be on, uh, like most Australian kids, I just love sport. Um, if I could never be good enough to be on the, you know, elite level, what what's my next option? And, um, yeah, and so I decided to study sports science, which was very much in its infancy back then. You know, we're talking 1992. Uh, 1993, I think. So, um, yeah, there was a, there was maybe one or two courses in the country, um, and I was lucky enough that the course was 20 minutes from where I lived, uh, uh, University of New South Wales in the Oatley campus. So, studied there for three years, and still didn't know what I was going to do. Had no idea, um, but just wanted to learn more about the human body and physiology and all that. And you try to get a job during that uh, that time. You wrote a few letters. Yeah, I I uh, was in my f- first year so I was 19 and I loved soccer um, uh, football in the global tongue but um, soccer out here and uh, uh, was was yeah playing it religiously and I sent uh, 92 I think it was 92 letters to every professional club in England uh, asking for a job I hadn't even finished my degree but um, <laughs> I sent uh, I sent them all out. So literally got 92 stamps, typed out 92 letters on the home typewriter. I'm, you know, yep. showing my age, um, and just said, you know, I'm studying sports science. Uh, can I have a job uh, as a fitness coach? And so get back to you. I got three letters back. I'll never forget it. Um, uh, the rest of them couldn't be bothered, which I could understand Absolutely. because sending a letter, you know, you can't imagine, you know, Manchester United or Manchester City sending a letter to an Australian kid, but. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Leicester, Scunthorpe, and Wrexham uh, got back to me. They all said no, but at least they got back to me. So, um, yeah, I've still got those letters actually. So, um, uh, yeah, it was just that's what I wanted to do. I, I sort of dreamt of being involved in in soccer as a profession, um, and so yeah, I, I was ambitious from a kid. And yeah. and how did you get started in the, in the professional sort of sporting world? Um, I spoke at a conference. Uh, I did my honours because, again, I was sort of prolonging that uni lifestyle. I really enjoyed the, you know, playing golf and that sort of thing. And and I was still living at home. And uh, I uh, worked at a, I presented at a conference. And uh, one of the guys there, a guy called John Marsden, was working for the Swans, a Sydney Swans AFL. And um, he said, um, you know, it's hard to find Sydney people who uh, have. He, who he thought could transfer their skills to AFL because um, the Swans were only pretty young up in Sydney back then. And have um, you ever seen an AFL game in your no, life? No, I'd <laughs> seen one in the Warwick Kappa days and, um, yeah, was fascinated by all the things that the Wiz could do. So, um, yeah, and so uh, 
my, my first job there was uh, because I was from Sydney and I was a, a half-decent sort of runner um, and none of the players were from Sydney. We had two players, Greg Stafford, Stephen Carey, who were from Sydney. Um, I was tasked with uh, finding running paths in on a Saturday morning in and around Sydney. So I decided to take them from Cronulla, which is you know, one of the southern beaches of Sydney, uh, near where I lived. And we'd do a 10k run there, and then I just worked my way up along the shoreline of Sydney. Some amazing runs, and um, and the players didn't know because most of them had just sort of found a place in Bondi and enjoyed that sort of lifestyle. Uh, but it came awry when um, we did the Spit to Manly run. Um, this is in 1997 or 1998, and uh, one of the players, Nick Fosdyke, rolled his ankle on that run, and and Rodney Ead, who had a uh, you know, he could be pretty brutal uh, in those days. Um, he let me know in no uncertain terms that, um, uh, yeah, that, that sort of project, Saturday morning project was over. So then I, I just put out cones and worked for uh, Aaron Murphy, who was a uh, um, sort of consultant um, fitness coach there and worked for a range of fitness coaches in my time at the Swans, Dirk Williams and Nick Hedjikostas, and just tried to absorb as much as possible while I was doing some lecturing at ACU so and trying to do my PhD. And you didn't know much about <clears throat> AFL? No, uh, I didn't. So I thought um, I would join the local team, um, local AFL team. As a player? As a player, yeah. yeah. So I loved playing soccer. By that stage, I'd given up cricket. Um, and uh, I was playing soccer on a Saturday and I'd joined the local team, St George Dragons AFL team. Uh, and that was a real eye-opener because, yeah, it was a pretty crappy league in the, the Sydney league and so there was some pretty rough and tumble guys that had been working down from the country and, and had played footy growing up but might have been working, you know, in, in Sydney and I just, you know, happened to be an okay sort of team sports player, just average, but wanted to know more about the game and and so I thought the best way to do it was to play it. Um, even at that crappy level, but I got to play on the SCG and really? um, yeah, because yeah, they, they the Swans had a had a team in that competition for that year, and so that was pretty good. And we had a, a coach by the name of Craig O'Brien who played a couple hundred games for Sydney, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, it was it was a, a tough you know playing soccer Saturday and getting beaten around in the reserves at um, SFL level. Uh, was tough, but um, what was your uh, position? I was ruck forward because uh, right. I was a glory hunter from way back, and um, so I kicked a few goals early on in the reserves. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I remember, uh, yeah, my first season in the reserves. I have to add in the reserves, so it was you know. Um, but yeah, uh, I kicked eighteen straight, and I was thinking this goal kicking thing. I don't know how they miss, you know. Then I started to actually think about it and started missing. So um, yeah, but it was good fun. Good fun. Met some really good people and good fun. Your goal kicking uh, skills were uh, came to the fore at Sydney. Uh, yeah, yeah. I um, as a player for the Swans called Robbie Armat, uh, Aboriginal player, just an outstanding player, and and I can probably admit it now because it was you know a long time ago. But Robbie came and played soccer with us. Uh, when he wasn't picked for the first team. Um, he used to have a few trouble troubles with his skin folds back in the day, Jinji Armat, and um, he uh, uh, and Rocket was pretty tough on skin folds if you weren't under uh, a certain level, he wouldn't pick you. So Robbie would play in the reserves, kick seven or eight, and literally drive and come play soccer with us, uh, come off the bench and dazzle, uh, which, you know, was not great um, on my behalf, but at that stage I was young. And, and Robbie uh, and I would spend... 
an hour after training, two hours after training, near the race at the SCG, just and he would teach me how to kick goals from the pocket. Um, uh, and so that became known as Burjo's Pocket. Um, I was crap everywhere else on the ground, but from that pocket because of Robbie Armat, um, because I, I don't think he just wanted to go home. I think he just loved playing. And, and so, yeah, I just learned how to kick the ball at different angles and uh, from only from that pocket. If you put me anywhere else on the ground, absolute garbage. But, um, yeah, from that pocket, I was okay. And how long were you at the Swans? I was there for three years. And then uh, when Paul Ruse took over, I had a pretty good relationship with Ruse. We played basketball together. And, and uh, he had me... Um, tracking the players using some old sort of technology, which I ended up using as part of my PhD, track performance. So I, would, I was lecturing at the time at ACU and I would get six or seven students up in an, an unused um, sort of corporate box and they would film one player during the game. And then I would use track performance, which is, if you like, a, a, a AFL oval on a A3 size computer tablet that graphic designers used to use and software developed by Neil Craig and Kevin Norton, who, who was my supervisor for my PhD. And you would literally follow the player on a, on a miniature version of, of the SCG. So I'd go out and measure the SCG or Geelong or wherever it was, um, replicate that on this tablet, and then from an elevate, elevated position, follow those players. So I would be at the game doing one live Six students would fill their practicum hours filming players individually because six cameras is all we had at, at ACU. And then I would go and watch that game again six more times. Um, so every single Swans game for two years, um, I watched between six and ten times. Um, <laughs> but all in the, in the, um, the view of one player only because one yeah. player was on camera um, the whole time. I did the same uh, the year after at Parramatta Power. Um, and so it really gave me an appreciation for what the players go through because you and can imagine. How has it worked? Uh, I mean, it was going back at night after the game and stayed up all night. It, honestly, I would I would plug the camera into my VCR okay. um, onto my little um, Sony TV and just watch it. And uh, yeah, and that would form part of my PhD. So um, I think people now with GPSs are, are spoilt yeah. because, uh, but it gave me a great grounding and and. You know, the best way to understand a game is to really know, you know, from our point of view, from the performance point of view, is to know what the players are going through. So it gave me a real appreciation. That and my illustrious um, Sydney Football League reserves career gave me a real um, appreciation of what they go through. So then you went to your, your first love, really, in soccer. Yeah. How did that, uh, how did that happen? Yeah, so uh, I'll never forget it. Uh, there was a full-time job at the Swans um, and I was, I was doing it part-time and I applied for it. And the football manager at the time sat me down and said, we're not going to consider you for the position um, because you're too close to the players. Um, we feel like you you know, you wouldn't be able to, to tell the players, um, you know, the hard lessons when you, when you needed to. And, and he was right. I was too close. To, I used to socialise with them, go to the pub with them because mm. I was the same age. Yep. So I'll never forget that lesson um, that the footy manager at the time uh, gave me because I was devastated that I didn't get the job. Um, so I left the Swans and uh, a job came up at Parramatta Power in the old NSL. And along with Perth Glory, we were the only professional um, uh, teams in the NSL. There were some pro professional players sprinkled about. but uh, So a coach called uh, Nick Theodorakopoulos, um, who'd won the league a few years before with Wollongong Wolves, um, joined at the same time as I did. And, um, uh, yeah, he appointed me and then left... Uh, 
for 12 weeks to go back to Greece. Um, so it was quite extraordinary. We had myself, an uh, excellent goalkeeping coach called Jim Fraser, part-time physio and a kit man, uh, Grant Parks, who I, I still speak to. And that was it. Um, that was the, the team and uh, the coach left and I had to do 12 weeks of pre-season um, by myself, every skill session. Every, this is of a professional uh, NSL team. We had some unbelievable players, Simon Colosimo, Fernando Reck, Andre Gumprecht, uh, Ante Milicic, Armad Elric, you know, some super mm. astro- all internationals. Yeah. Um, Brazilian international, Fernando Reck, um, who came out. And it was me um, arranging everything, pre-season camps to Gold Coast to North Queensland. So um, uh, we used to set the, using the technology that I, I mentioned earlier, track performance, myself and the kit man would park his van beside the training ground, set up a tripod uh, with a camera on top, press record, jump down off the car. I'd then referee the soccer game that would be going on, you know, the 11v11 or the 8v8, depending on numbers. Um, uh, referee the game, finish the training session, jump up, press stop on the on the v- VCR, then go home and, and analyse it from a physical point of view and then watch it again from a tactical point of view and count uh, pass efficiency because the players quite rightly would say, oh, you're worried about it's a physical burjo. So then I developed an efficiency index, passes per, uh, touches per uh, metre that the players did um, and that would be up for them the next day. So um, literally 2am I turn the VCR off and then roll up. I lived in Cronulla. I was part-time lecturing at North Sydney and we trained at Parramatta, so... <laughs> you couldn't get to three uh, places further apart. It was... A, I had a 1976 Mazda Capella, um, and I tested its limits, uh, you know, in those days, but it was incredible learning. Still to this day, the best learning sort of experience of my life, developing two consecutive, uh, you know, 12-week periodised pre-seasons from both a tactical and technical point of view. So I loved it. There was no great um, internet resources or anything like that. So I just ordered uh, uh, a ton of books from the US, from England, uh, just on training sessions of top managers. And so, yeah, that was that was a good good time. Uh, we made the grand final in my second year, uh, lost to Perth. Um, but yeah, it was That a was really about the end of the, uh, yeah. the NSL, was it not? Uh, yeah. I remember that grand final. Uh, yeah, yeah. The NSL uh, stopped after that and the A-League was born, but there was an 18-month sort of hiatus. Mm, so you were out of a job, basically. Out of a job. Um, uh, I was still lecturing at yeah. uh, Australian Catholic Uni at North Sydney and loved that. Um, but uh, yeah, I was getting, I don't know, $25,000, $27,000. That's, that's about it. Um, this is 2004. Um, so, uh, yeah, what I, what I thought I would do to sort of keep my coaching skills up and keep sharp, I, I basically volunteered at um, Blacktown City, which is in the State League. Um, so, again, driving from Cronulla yeah, to even North... Further even further. <laughs> even further than Parramatta. Uh, Cronulla to North Sydney to Blacktown. Um, and I was there three times a week. We had a, uh, a great coach called uh, Bomber Brown, and he... Um, yeah, he just said, do you want to come and help out? So I literally would volunteer to, uh, I, I might have got a thousand bucks on a tracksuit. Um, uh, I was 30 years old, um, but uh, that's that's what I wanted to do to keep my, my ability to, to talk in front of a group of players sort of sharp. I didn't want to lose that, you know, while 
while the league was shut down. So, um, yeah, so I did that for half a season and then, yeah, and then an opportunity came up in, back in AFL. Right. So uh, tell us about your the next stage of your AFL career. <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, yeah, I went to, to Port Adelaide. I, I spoke at a conference at the grand final conference in 2004 in Port Adelaide. We were playing Brisbane. I had no interest in AFL. I could have gone to the game, but I flew back home instead, you know. So, um, Sacrilege. Yeah, yeah, I had no real interest. Um, but I spoke at a conference about my, some of my honours research and uh, my PhD research, which is looking at talent identification and how we can identify, yeah, some of the flaws with the draft because the draft was seen as this... Holy Grail, and that might be a chat for another time, but I, I was sort of identified that a lot of the draft testing was fairly useless unless you put it in a match-specific context, which we did and found that the draft was actually quite useful. So I spoke about that, to, and there was a few coaches and fitness coaches, and, you know, I think you fell asleep at the back of the room. Probably, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Um, and the strength coach at the time for Port Adelaide was there because they were playing the next day and, mm. and he, he was a super uh, strength coach and, and more of a, a holistic strength coach, we'll call him, because he had a lot of other, other skills to his bow called Scott Barrow. And he contacted me the next uh, Monday and said that, uh, maybe it was Tuesday, that uh, Andrew Russell, the fitness coach for Port Adelaide, after they won the grand final, had left uh, with Alastair Clarkson to join Hawthorne. And they were looking and originally I said, no, I'm not particularly interested. I was pretty happy with where I was in Sydney. Um, but he called about a week later and said they've interviewed a few people and no one was really suitable and, you know, there was a real opportunity and, and Scott and I had, had bonded over that week. We'd spoken about a few different things and different philosophies. So I went down there and interviewed and um, Choco Williams, Mark Williams, the coach at the time, they just won the, you know, won the flag. So I reckon I was there in a, a $100 suit and a tie that I'd scrambled together and, uh, you know, I was 30, but I'd never had to wear a suit. Um, and, uh, yeah, went went down there and interviewed and, and that was a tough... I've never been so intimidated in an interview in all my life, you know. I didn't really know Choco that well, but he turned up... He's different. He's different, yeah. Uh, 45 minutes late, um, thongs, shorts and a shirt. He put his feet up on the boardroom there at Alberton Oval and said, why the hell, we are, currently we are the best AFL team on the planet. Why the hell would we want to employ you? <laughs> that's a good opening, and, right? Yeah. And I said, okay, that's a tough start. Um, and then he looked at me and he said, take your tie off, take your jacket off and put that computer away. We won't be, you know, I'd spend hours preparing a, <laughs> a PowerPoint presentation. He said, we won't be needing that. Okay. And then for I reckon two hours he just threw scenario after scenario to me in the interview. Um, you know, we're on a plane and none of the players are moving around. We're going to Perth to play a big game. What do you do? The players think yoga is bullcrap. What do you do? Um, the players aren't listening to you. How do you handle it? You know, we've got Warren Treadray, you know, one of the best players in the game. If he's doing his own thing, you find him running along a beach on a Tuesday night. What do you tell him? And so that was... That was different, uh, unlike any, I'd been to a lot of job interviews at the time to try and get full-time work, but that was different. Um, but by the end of the interview, he came down, I was had to fly back to Sydney and he put an envelope in my, uh, in through the window of the taxi that I was catching and I opened it, um, 
you know, opened it on the way, and and I remember, you know, it was a lot of money for for for, uh, for, someone, for me for someone, someone who's been on twenty five. Yeah, <laughs> literally been scratching and and scraping around in part time work, and much to the frustration of of my parents, you know. My sister's an, a, a teacher, my brother's an accountant, so and my other <laughs> brother was an engineer, so they had jobs. Yeah, you'd open the paper and see jobs everywhere. But So, yeah, after being rejected for a lot of full-time jobs, uh, it was it was really nice to, to land a full-time job, albeit in a different city in a code that I didn't know heaps about, so... Tough gear coming into a, you know, not the ideal one. You want to come into a side at the bottom. Exactly. <laughs> There's a exactly. side of just one apprenticeship. Just one. And... Um, um, had a, a very well-regarded fitness guy in, in yes. Andrew Russell. Yeah, um, you know, yeah very best in the business, We'll, we'll get sure. him on the program in a few weeks. But yeah. uh, great uh, great guy, been very successful and so on. I mean, tough gig to come in uh, to come in then. Uh, how were you sort of received? Yeah, it was it was tough. It was really tough because the players would joke around and say, uh, Andrew's nickname was Jack. Jack wouldn't do that and <laughs> Jack would do it differently and... Don't bring your soccer bullshit here, you know. Sorry, um, <laughs> Jack. Jack wouldn't do that, and and even the coaches, you know, because we we they won in two thousand and four after years of being at the top, but always sort of yes. falling down at the yeah. last hurdle. And that a coach, uh, still comfortably the smartest coach, you know, that I've ever worked with in Phil Walsh, um, mm. uh, and and he ended up being a mentor of mine and a really close mate um, before he passed away, and. But in that first year, he was brutal to me. We'd go into match committee, and again, it's 2005 when stats were not anywhere near as prevalent as they are now in sports, and he would come with probably somewhere between 200 and 250 pages on the opposition that we would play. And I've never seen anything like it. It would sit in, in team selection, and he'd read out, we might be playing Collingwood, and he'd say, Buckley this, and you know whoever that... Um, and then he'd just close his stats book and say, it doesn't matter because we're not fit, and just look me straight in the eye. <laughs> and it was brutal. It really was. I, I didn't enjoy that first year. We made the we made the finals and we got hammered by the Crows at the time, which is always hurts Ooh, yeah. being beat by your local rival. And then 2006, we were awful, um, you know, came well out of the finals, 15th or so. Why was that, do you think? Um, I think the players had reached the pinnacle yeah. and it was a – it was an old list, uh, you know, um, uh, super players at the time, you know, Chad Corns, Warren Treadray, Brett Montgomery, you know, Michael mm. Wilson, you know, still Roger James, yeah, you know, Matt Primus, oh, unbelievable, Josh Franco, Stuart Jew, great players, but they'd reached the pinnacle and, yeah. and probably their motivation wasn't, wasn't as high. Maybe the program wasn't as good as what Jack's was, <laughs> um, you know, maybe... There was there's a whole range of things. Um, so oh five we were okay. Oh six we we were poor. Um, uh, had a lot of injuries and and um, yeah. And then oh seven uh, came yeah. along and and mm. yeah we had a great year in oh seven. So what changed? What was the difference between oh six and oh seven? Do you think? Uh, we brought a lot of young players into the group. Uh, we had a great draft, which is what happens when you know you, mm. you come down the yeah. bottom. And so we got Robbie Gray. Justin Westhoff, Travis Boak, yeah, right, um, yeah. those players who were first-year players. Um, but we had some younger players that were, were coming through and, and, you know, showed some real promise, as well as still the Corns brothers and, you know, but guys like Brad Ebert, Troy Chaplin, um, you know, were just starting to mm. forge their path in, in the AFL. 
And what happens, as you know better than I do, Doc, we, we had a couple of early wins. I remember beating Frio in Perth in round one and Damon White, who was a very good player but not a household name, kicking goals from the pocket from 60 metres, you know, to let us get over the line in Frio. Um, you just build that momentum. Mm. I remember so we... important. Oh, at the start of that season, every AFL pundit picked us to come 17th or 18th. And I, I put their ladder, um, cut cut it out, cut the Melbourne papers out and put it on the gym, uh, on the wall, just sticky-taped it to the wall, um, uh, just to show that no-one rated us at all, and probably quite rightly, but um, as the season progressed and we, you know, we, we stayed around, in and around first, second, third, we, um, yeah, we kept referring back to that. Um, and so we made the... Made the grand final, um, which was which was a you know a massive feat. We won the prelim by seventy or eighty points against yeah. against the Kangaroos and so from fifteenth to uh, to the grand final, yeah, almost unheard of. Yeah, really. it was, and you know we had a lot of luck with injuries, and we had a, a fit squad, and um, you know we could bring players in. But in the prelim, we lost Michael Wilson to uh, an Achilles injury, and that hurt us because he was genuinely tough um, mm. and a super player. Um, and we came up against <laughs> Geelong in the grand final, which wasn't a great day. Um, no, no. I mean, uh, looking back on that, that grand final, I mean, could you have done anything different? I mean, was it just not, were they unstoppable, Geelong? I mean, what, what yeah. uh, or did you try anything during the game or what? Uh... No, I remember I was, I was on the earphone so I could hear everything that was going on and could communicate with the coaching box. And, and um, I remember running out to that grand final. And the two things that I'd do differently, um, I'd heard a story, um, in fact, I'd, I'd phoned Greg Stafford, who who is a great mate of mine, and um, he told me that in the 96 grand final, uh, I asked him about his experiences, and he said if, yeah, when the Swans played in 96 grand final against the more fancy kangaroos, he said if if he had his time again, he would tell a joke to the players just to calm them down a bit and relax. And I re- distinctly remember as it was yesterday doing the warm-up before the 07 grand final and looking back as we were coming up the race in, in the MCG and I thought that the players looked a bit intimidated and if I had my time again, I would, would have made a difference, probably not. But I would have uh, told a joke or and I had one lined up I had one ready to go um, and uh, yeah I probably would have done something like that and just tried to just put the players at ease a bit anyway we did the um, uh, the first quarter we had a couple of chances but then Geelong kicked you know kicked really well and halfway through the first uh, it, sorry quarter time uh, I spoke to Phil Walsh who'd become a great friend and mentor uh, by that stage after hating him for, for the first year and, and just said um he said, Choco, we should start a fight. <laughs> we, should, <laughs> we should start a fight. We have to do something. Mm-hmm. Let's do something. Just a circuit breaker. And, um, yeah, it didn't happen. And, yeah, that was a, still the heaviest defeat in grand final history. And, and, we uh, beat, uh, beat our record, actually. I was part of the, uh, the previous uh, <laughs> record loss. I always say, oh, I've made a grand, I played a record-breaking grand final. To play. Yes. I was involved in uh, Melbourne in, in, uh, in 88 when... Uh, I, I remember that. We got absolutely thrashed by Hawthorne. Uh, we actually made the grand final the wrong year. We have made it the year before we'd have won it, but uh, we made it that year and came up against a Hawthorne who were uh, 
who were just magnificent. And I remember 10 minutes into the game thinking, yep. you know, I want this to be over. I mean, yeah, you just knew yeah. that it was not your day. We'd lost, similarly, we'd lost Stephen O'Dwyer, our main ruckman, in the prelim final through suspension. And uh, not that that would have made that much difference, but it was just, yeah, a horrible day. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was a bad day. And I always think that, we, you know, we can help get a team to somewhere like that after that. It's, you know, not that I'm absolving any responsibility, Doc, but, um, yeah. I was, actually, uh, I was actually doing radio commentary for the ABC that day and uh, they were so bored. In the last quarter, they came down to me and talked about, you know, breaking breaking Melbourne's record. You're not helping me get over it, Doc. You're not helping me at all. But. So, yeah, that was uh, that was not great. So, um, so that was your last, uh, last game at yeah, uh, Port Adelaide. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, uh, I'd done a little bit of work for um, the Olympic team um, for Graham Arnold in 2007 and six, and uh, they played, they had camps in Adelaide, the Olympic soccer team, mm-hmm. and um, he'd asked to help out, and the club had, you know, had given, Port Adelaide had given me the okay, and, and, and Arnie was great, and he, he uh, had said to me that he was uh, um, campaigning for a full-time position, with the Socceroos, um, uh, and so when that became a reality, I think they interviewed you know five or six people around you know probably around the world, um, or at least around the country for it. And uh, soccer being my first love and being a patriotic Australian, it was literally my dream job. Um, so I interviewed with with Arnie and uh, Rob Barn, who'd just been appointed as a technical director, a Dutch mm-hmm. um, Dutch coach, and um, yeah, I was lucky enough to get the job, um, uh, which was in Sydney again, which is my hometown. And uh, yeah, so at, at the end of the 2007, I think it was maybe a month or two after the grand final, I interviewed and got the job. And Port Adelaide were uh, gracious enough to to uh, release me from, I had a year to go in my contract, I think. And so they released me from that and I ended up, uh, but I did a lot of the pre-season um, and ended up in Sydney in mid to late January um, once I'd helped Port sort of identify a replacement so so I was back in Sydney and and back in 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 soccer which uh, working for the national team which is you know like I said before every kid's dream is to play for their country but never good enough but that, that was still probably a career it's still the career highlight for me was that World Cup. Uh, well, it was mainly because you got to work with me. I was about to say the staff, yeah. staff were <laughs> horrible and, you know, tried to prevent us. But that 2010 World Cup campaign and the World Cup was – it never gets any better for me than, than um, you know, that, that going to the World Cup with your country was brilliant. Because obviously the 2006 World Cup had been Australia's greatest moment, really. The, yes. The amazing – the Uruguay – qualification game uh, yes. that I was at that I'll never forget uh, of all the sporting events I've ever been to. I think that was probably the highlight. And, yeah, uh, But um, so it was going to always be a hard act to follow, wasn't it? Yes. That, that, uh, that was such a magical time, that 2006 World Cup. And yeah. then we had to go again. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think you know, Pim Verbeek was a coach and, and we both love him and, and miss him dearly mm. even now. Um, yeah, he's one of the true gentlemen of the sport. and He came in. At the same time as you, didn't almost exactly was, the same Graham time. Arnold did it for a little while with the Asian yep. Cup, which didn't go that well. Yep. And then, because obviously they had Gus in the in the, the World Cup, so there was a, a real bias towards the Dutch sort of uh, setup, and they had a yep. Dutch football director in Rob Barn and so on. And uh, 
and I think we were going to, I think they'd been talking to Dick Advocar, yep. I think, and he was going to do the job, and then he was going to meet us in London, I remember, and we were playing a game at, at Fulham, I think, and, uh, and he just didn't, didn't turn up, and all of yep. a sudden, oh, gosh, you know, he, uh, I remember this telling us he won't be coming, and then... Uh, then the next thing we knew, when uh, we were back in Sydney, yep. uh, and we were getting introduced to, to this guy Pim Verbeek. Yeah, yeah. I always remember his first his first meeting with us all when he yes. when he spoke to us. Yeah, yeah. And look, he came across as quite a um, unemotional um, person initially, and and he was hell bent on implementing the Dutch system of of you know the Verheyen sort of method of conditioning and. Um, and so that was a challenge early on for me because that, that wasn't necessarily what I um, believed in. Because um, Australia really always been renowned for its physical, you know, for its fitness and, yes. its, and its hard <clears throat> running and aggression rather than obviously, you know, to compete with the skill of the Dutch and, and others yeah. and so on. And, and he really tried to sort of move it more towards a skill sort of based uh, yeah. And, uh, well, he'd worked with he'd worked with um, Gus up in the 2002 World Cup in Korea yeah. with a lot of success, you know. Mm. And they, yeah, I remember, he used to tell us they they would be in camp for a year, the yeah. the South Korean team leading into the World Cup, and and evidently, you know, uh, someone like Behind came in to help out at different times. So that was the methodology that they used mm. there. So I think the pressure from above as well with with Rob Barnes, that was his, Rob Barnes' preferred method was that way. But, uh, you know, over time uh, we were able to convince him that there might be a better method or a more appropriate method and to his immense credit and, you know, be remiss of us to not sort of um, acknowledge the fact that we went through that first ever Asian campaign undefeated, conceding mm -hmm. one goal. Um, yeah, it was an extraordinary campaign. Played in the, in the weirdest places, in didn't we? I the mean, most extreme environments that yeah. any Australian soccer team had ever played in, because we hadn't we hadn't had to play in Bahrain in July when you know you go up to the FIFA officials and say, "Look, it is forty five degrees here," and then they grab the temperature gauge, go inside into the air conditioning room, and say, "No, no, it's twenty six. <laughs> Look, it's twenty six. So uh, extraordinary environments that. That uh, mm. you know, we were the pioneers. The players were the pioneers going into those environments, and we conceded one goal, and that was a misdirected cross over Schwartz's head in Dubai against yes. Iran. I think it was. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that's grossly underrated. Absolutely, I mean, they've always been in the shadow of the 2006 team, but yeah. uh, that that. Uh, Qualification was tough. I mean, oh, we played that brutal. game in, uh, was it in Kunming in, in China? Oh. The Chinese decided they would uh, put us as far away from civilization as possible yep. at altitude. At altitude, next to the for, Tibetan border. They'd been training for three weeks at altitude. We yep. rocked in from Singapore, I think, where we played a, a yep. game. And, and, uh, and the game was at 2 p.m. local time. And they said, oh, for TV, for TV. No one's watching, but it, it happened to be 4 a.m. or something like that. I can't remember the exact time, but 4 a.m. European time which is where all our players yeah. had come from. And it wasn't in a FIFA window, so we couldn't get the players there a week before to it, you know. So all of those things, you mm. know, I think Schwartz, saved a penalty that day um, mm. to get us a nil-nil draw, you know. Yeah. So um, all of those environments were amazing learning experiences for us. Uh, I learned to lose eight kilos uh, after that Kunming trip, after getting food poisoning. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, it was amazing experience. Uh, it really was. So uh, I loved it. Loved it, and then obviously leading up to the to the finals, uh, we made we got through to the finals, and yep. uh, they were in South Africa. 
uh, which presented a lot of challenges. Yeah, it did. And, and again, uh, without... Uh you and I get both uh, both get frustrated from time to time when young uh, people who expect everything to be young fitness and sports scientists and I've turned into one of those people. But we, we were doing you know single and double sessions. We had um, GPS units in single cradles, so you could only upload them one at a time. Heart rate units in single cradles, so you could only upload them one at a time. And so I would go through and and analyze those sessions individually. Um, and Pim wasn't interested in those first couple of years at all in, you know, that sort of technology. But I would slide reports under his hotel room at night. Um, I'd get to get to them by one o'clock um, and literally slide them under his, and he could have been making paper aeroplanes with them for, for all I know. But uh, there was an occasion um, where, and I'd write little uh, handwritten comments so that he knew that I was trying to interpret them. It wasn't just data, it was... Harry Kulis or, you know, Mark Bresciano, that. Be careful of Brett Holman tomorrow because of these reasons. Um, and I can't remember who it was, but it might have been Vinnie Grella um, went down with a with a tight calf. And and we'd all discussed at You Man Colsey that Vinnie was in a bit of strife. Mm-hmm. And so I'd written it on that report saying, just be careful of Vinnie Grella. And then, uh, lo and behold, the next day... Um, uh, he had a tight calf and Pim and Hank Doot, his trusty assistant, um, came into my uh, hotel room and said, how'd you know? How'd you know? And I think we all sat down and had a discussion saying, you know, this is his history um, and this is what the data was telling us. And so from then on, there was no question asked. Mm. Um, uh, both Pim and Hank were outstanding with it and... Um, yeah, asked a lot of questions and, and uh, then it wasn't necessarily the Dutch model that they were employing. It was, you know, the Dutch tactics and PIMS tactics and we never, ever questioned those. It was just more the physical preparation, which was massive in South Africa because it was 2,000 metres. You'd done an amazing amount of work. You, Colsey had been in Europe for, uh, you know, a few months in the lead up and you'd done an amazing amount of work on whether we should have altitude tents and all those kinds of scenarios. I'd gone to South Africa maybe eight to ten times with Gary Moretti um, beforehand to, you know, scout the best places to stay and all that sort of stuff. And, and um, yeah, uh, we, we landed on Klufsik, which was an amazing place, but the altitude, you know, we, we decided as a group to go there two weeks beforehand to give our players the best chance of of adapting to the altitude and uh, and we, we used that submax heart rate test that we developed for that occasion, really. Um, and it was just fascinating physiology, watching the players do this same test every single day and watching their heart rate responses to altitude. It was, it was bloody brilliant as a physiologist to have a look at it and see who adapted quickly and who didn't. You know, it was great. Because mm. obviously there's a lot of talk about, I mean, the rugby teams have it all the time when they go to South Africa. How, how soon should they go? Should yep. they go... A week early, should they go the day before? Yep. You know, uh, what what's your sort of feeling? What did you learn from that that Socceroos experience about altitude? Yeah, I think we learned that there was there's one of two methods. You go the day before, and it's almost a smash and grab. Which um, you so can't do for a three week World Cup. For yep. a World Cup, and we were hoping it, it'd be five and six weeks, but. <laughs> um, yeah. So what we did is, you, you, there's a middle ground of sort of four or five days. Um, uh, which a lot of teams took up. I think FIFA made you be there, uh, 
maybe six or seven days before. But we chose, I think it was just over two weeks, uh, because all the physiologists at the AIS uh, had, had told us that that was the time to go, uh, and, and they were spot on based on 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 the work that we did you know, with the players at the time. They were absolutely spot on. So, um, And Pim was good enough. Uh, you know, the submax test that we developed was only four minutes, so it was, it was nothing. Um, so, yeah, and, and the players bought into it, and... And the results, what people forget is our results were the equivalent exactly the of, same. of yeah. Germany. Um, mm. It was just that first game against the Germans where our best player got sent off after 20-odd minutes um, and we lost uh, in Tim Kale and we lost to a unbelievable German team. You know, Mesut Ozil was, was mm. uh, I'd not heard of him before that. You know, not, of course I'd heard of him, but didn't think he was that good. I was lucky enough to get to work with him, uh, you know, mm. many years later. But he just destroyed us. And, um, yeah, a 10-man Australian team. And then we had another player sent off in Harry Kuehl against Ghana. Um, so the odds were stacked against us yep. big time. And people forget that, I think. So, they do. They do. Um, it's, uh, as I said, it was a hard act to follow what... what uh, People expected us to get through to the next the next round, and uh, and we probably should have. I think. Yeah. I mean, the Kale sending off was it's always going to happen early in a World Cup. Referees like to show how tough they are, and, and it really. I mean, if that had been the f second week of the World Cup, there's no way it would have been red card. No chance. Yeah. And the cool one was clearly not a red card. No. I mean, no. Uh, you know, just hit his body, and. Yep. Uh, but you know, uh, you got to take those. That's the trouble with a sport like, like soccer, I guess, rather yes. than. AFL, where you, AFL you get another chance, or whatever, or basketball, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just so tough. And yeah. I know it sounds like excuses, doesn't it? But, uh, it does, you know, and obviously you're not good enough, but, um, yeah, I think getting going out of the World Cup on goal difference um, when we've got the same amount of points, you know, and, and Pim was hammered for picking Richard Garcia in that first game, or in that... Uh, uh, yeah, in the first game against Germany, and that wasn't the reason why we lost. No. You know, he's an amazing player, an unbelievable workhorse, and was playing in the Premier League at the time with Hull. Mm. Yeah, that was a disappointing. Uh, it was a great experience. Yes, I mean, uh, staying at that uh, you know luxury yeah. resort we stayed yes. at, and uh, you'd look out and get it, wake up in the morning, and there'd be sort of zebras walking past. Zebras and giraffes, <laughs> and yeah, all kinds. It was brilliant. Um, but yeah, it was it was amazing, and obviously that Serbia game was a great. Game and but then the next day, you and I were on a plane. Yeah, well that's uh, that's the next part of the story, and uh, we might save that for uh, <laughs> for the next the next show with uh, Rookie and Burjo head to Liverpool. But um, so let's uh, let's leave it that this week. Thanks for your uh, your time. No worries. And, I, I, uh, let's just add that the, the shows won't always be about one of us. So um, yeah, <laughs> no, uh, no. yeah. It's, no, we thought we'd just get. Uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating story, a fascinating journey you've been on in, in particular. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that uh, next time. And then we'll, we'll get a bunch of other people in to, uh, to tell their stories, which will be just as, uh, just as interesting. So uh, that's the end of our first show. Cheers, we'll Look Doc. forward to the next one. Yeah, no Thanks, worries. Thanks, Joe. Look forward to it.